work here. I'm, I'm Feels like I've been gone forever. Uh, well, we're going to resume our series uh, from the letter of James uh, to the churches during his day. James the Just, the Bishop of Jerusalem. Cool guy. Uh, he refers to uh, <clears throat> the Old Testament uh, many times when he's speaking. Uh, and in some places he's referring to things the, the Apostle Paul is talking about in some of his letters. So there's a general idea that James was aware of what was going on in the New Testament churches beyond Jerusalem and other places. So he speaks very uh, knowledgeably about what was going on in the churches and also the remedies uh, that he and others church leaders were uh, teaching to the churches. Today's passage, uh, James 4, verses 4 through 10, has to do with uh, idolatry. I know it doesn't sound like that from the top, but uh, it has something to do with what Jesus uh, told a parable about. Now, in, in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, we read this passage. It says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I like that. And I, and I actually never actually read that before because you always go right to the parable, you know, and you forget the intro. The intro is really cool here. It was a parable told to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's a very dangerous thing because, like, if you're convinced that you're not sick, you won't go to the doctor, right? If you're convinced there's nothing wrong with you, you won't take your medicine. Uh, it, it's like, it's like a, a sinful pride that, uh, that is uh, doubly damning, if you will. Jesus tells this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The two ends of the social spectrum in James's day. The Pharisee standing by himself, this holy man, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes, tithes of all that I get. Those are his justifications for believing that he is a just man and righteous. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast, a sign of acute morning, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's James' lesson for today. Turn with me to chapter 4 in the Gospel of James, I mean the uh, letter of James. Chapter 4, verse 4, and we'll read uh, through to verse 10. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think, Scripture says, without reason, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says... God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these warnings from uh, your servant James. We are grateful to read his letter. Uh, and we thank you, Lord, for reaching out to us. Uh, and we, uh, we pray, Father, this morning that we will receive these things in a spirit of gratefulness, Lord. Help us to, to see how we may humble ourselves, how we may have more faith in you, to be called truly your disciples, to follow you. And, your, and, you, and obey your precepts, Father. So be with us in this. You must fill us with your spirit, overcome our fleshiness, so that we may abide in you all the more. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So <clears throat> James writes this letter, and he is, he is direct, and he's not pulling any punches. You get the idea that James knows the people that he is writing to. It's like he's been to all these churches. He has visited them. He has met the people. He is acquainted with their issues, the problems that are going on in those places. And he is applying wisdom, godly wisdom, to these situations. So where it requires compassion and tenderness, he gives it. But where it requires directness, he gives that as well. So he is generous in all his ways, so to speak, just like the Lord is with us. Generous in all his ways. When, when we need tender, loving care, he gives that. When we, he needs to stop us, to bring us up short and direct us to self-examination and calls us to correct and repent, he gives every opportunity to do that. He is generous in all his ways, in discipline and in blessing, all of which is examples, is a functioning of his love for us. So we see that in this letter that James has written. He is uh, warning the people against self-exaltation. This, was, this is what it comes down to. Now we think of idolatry as wor- worshiping things that are outside of us, right? An idol over there, a culture over here, a, a practice over there, philosophy, you know, money, things, comfort, etc., pleasure, all those things. But we often fail to recognize when we ourselves become the idol and we engage in self-exaltation. I'm pretty good. I'm better than all these folks. You know, they're just peons. I'm an elder or I'm a pastor. I'm above it all. You know, that's when things get really dangerous because it's a delusion. And if you fall for it, you are doubly damned because you cut yourself off from the very thing that you need to understand who you are and to be saved from your own wickedness. So James is applying himself to this very important issue to the church. Exaltation is dangerous, it's harmful, delusional practice. In public ways, it leads to the end. That is to say, vaunting, exalting yourself in public to others by your attitude, by the things you say, by the way you treat others. For instance, in Jesus' parable here, it was the fellow who exalted himself and treated everybody else with contempt. Public, 
self-exaltation. Then there's the private kind of self-exaltation. It's what goes on in your own head and heart as you make deals with yourself over sin. It's not so bad. All the heroes of the Bible were sinners. Yeah, I can just, you know, shake this off. It was a mistake. I admit that. It was a mistake. But it wasn't that bad. I mean, others do worse. This is the kind of thinking that leads to self-grandizement or self-exaltation. It is God who, whose opinion matters in these things. God who made us and God who saves us will have the final word. And this passage from James today, God is the bridegroom. His people are the bride. In this uh, short little passage, James calls the people to whom his letter is addressed adulterous people. And the word there is in the feminine form. He's calling them all adulteresses, meaning they are the bride portion of the marriage covenant. So the whole church then are adulteresses. They're, they're, they are wicked brides, in other words, because they are exalting themselves. In, and in faith, they are turning to their own strengths and turning their back on God. So they lack humility. They need to be brought up short and show the error of their ways. So James uses this language. You adulterers. You adulteresses. Doesn't mean that everyone's having an affair in the church. But it does mean that their faith is waning. They're putting their faith in the world or in their own strength instead of in God. So James is calling them to account. He's using these Old Testament themes to get through to the people who are receiving the letter. James uses this language to demonstrate the danger of such double-mindedness. Turning away from God, from Paul's perspective, means that you become a God-hater, an enemy of God. And when we, when we hear that kind of language, very often we think of ourselves being at war with God. Like we're the ones who are throwing the rocks. Right? But a war has two parties. Right? It has hostility going both ways. And sometimes we forget that God-haters, rebels, people who are at war with God, may well receive the wrath of a warlike God against them, which is going to be bad news. Because you may feel pretty big as you go up against God, shaking your fist and calling him names, turning your back on him and going your own way. But that's the way to sure destruction. In the light of Old Testament background, this must mean not only a hostility of the believer towards God, but of God towards the believer. God must judge those who break their covenant vows to him. And James wants to protect his church, the church, from that. James, James' readers weren't over, overtly disclaiming God. I mean, they weren't taking vows. Uh, they, they weren't apostate in the sense uh, that uh, the Roman authorities haven't come down and, and made them uh, offer salt to idols or to the emperor. Uh, the Jews haven't uh, uh, compelled them. Uh, in, any, in any concerted way to come back to the temple. Uh, that happens uh, under Paul. James here is, uh, is trying to get their attention and, and saying that their behavior, the little nuances of their belief structure, 
are leading them away from God and towards worldliness and their own strength. And he's saying, don't do that. Do not do that. Come back. But their jealousy, their selfish ambition, their unrestrained passions, exhibiting as they did earthly, unspiritual, and devilish attitudes from verse 15, chapter 3, amounted to a testimony that says they're doing exactly that. They are turning away from God. And God will brook no rival. He is jealous over the ones that he loves and over the ones for whom he has ransomed. He demonstrates, James demonstrates to his people that under no circumstances are they to give any sort of credence or faith structure to uh, the world's devices or the world's institutions or the world's cultures, especially their own strength. They are not to do that. So he draws out of them the, uh, the ultimate consequences of worldly behavior in this way. They are adulterers. James seeks to prick their consciences to stimulate their repentance. They need to recognize that their behavior, their attitudes, their quarrelsomeness, their ungodly behavior is lethal. In verse 5, we have some confusing Greek. And it's not entirely clear whether James thinks that the spirit which, has made, which God has made to dwell in us is the Holy Spirit or or a revived, a, uh, a reformed spirit uh, that God has given us through salvation. Uh, but either way, doesn't really matter, either way, the phrase reminds us that God has a claim on us by virtue of his work in our lives. Another pressure in life. We see that as pressure, right? I, I, know, I know friends who talk about the obligation to obey and how that is kind of an odious thing. Although Paul says it ought not be odious because it's, it's the way to eternal life. It's the way to fullness, right? To obey God is to, is to dwell in the shadow of his mercy and of his grace and to enjoy that relationship with God. That's the thing that builds us up. Our acknowledgement of him as being our Lord, of his ways being our ways, etc. So we are urged to go in that direction. God has a consuming fire and his demands on us may seem terrifying at times. And in addition, the physical pressure of, of culture, of economics, of political demands also seems overpowering. We find ourselves often between a rock and a hard place on planet Earth. The vying expectations of God's claim on us and the lethal friendship with the world are met by God's overwhelming grace. Wherever we find ourselves in that position between these two worlds, God's grace is there with us. His mercy is there with us. And his promises are there with us. The reality that should come through to people of faith, people who call God their God, is that he is merciful, gracious, all-loving, and he willingly supplies all that we need to meet his all-encompassing demands. As Augustine has said, God gives what he demands. So what do we do? If we find ourselves sort of, you know, one way or the other, to some degree or the other, like the church to whom James is writing this letter, if we find ourselves there, 
What ought we to do? Well, Dr. James has a prescription for us. James says, humble yourselves. Admit our weakness, our fallibility, and our fickle-mindedness. And turn to God to seek his face. We do this by several ways. The first is to submit and resist. Submit to God and resist the devil. And scripture tells us that when we do that, the devil will flee from us, but God will draw near to us. That's a great thing. That's just what we want. So it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's one, one action does two things. It has two fruit, if you will. You know, first, God will draw near, and the second, the, God, that the devil will flee from us. That's just what we want. Perfecto. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Proverbs 8.17 says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. In, addis- in addition, James says, that a sincere and radical repentance is needed. So wash your hands, he says, you sinners. So lives marked by sinful behavior means that you are bearing testimony that God has not changed your life. And whatever you're trying to do to overcome it by willpower or, or any other means is insufficient. You know, admitting to God that we are incapable of being uh, strong in these situations means that we are applying to heaven to receive help in those things. And help will come. Help will come. It's putting our faith in God to change us, to transform us, to make us holy, as he has called us to be. So wash your hands for sinners and purify your hearts, you double-minded people, he says. So two things. Wash your hands is an action. Purify your hearts is a spiritual thing. So there's two things going on here. Action and faith, right? Two things. Not just one thing. So if you have faith, take an action. You know, in fighting sinfulness or, or, uh, or bad behavior, it, same thing, you can apply for help to heaven. And in addition, you can seek godly help in other places, in God's word, in prayer, or brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, there are structures in place that God has provided for his people to find help, to, to refocus ourselves, to reapply ourselves to the work that God has called us to. And when we do that, we are humbling ourselves. In a way, we are, through our actions, admitting that we believe that God can change us. Just as, as uh, uh, unruly behavior bears testimony that we don't care, or that we don't know, or we don't believe that God can change us. So, James says, submit, resist, draw near, wash your hands, take that action, that physical action, whatever it it, it entails, purify your hearts, and understand that God justifies, you don't. And how God justifies because he loves us and we humble ourselves. We admit that we need his purifying power. We admit that it's only by the blood of Jesus Christ that we may know reconciliation and look forward to eternal life. And it's nothing that we can do. Even after we're saved, we're not piling up brownie points in heaven by doing the right thing. 
If we're doing the right thing, we're only doing what saved people ought to be doing. We're not adding to what God can do for us. We are bearing testimony to what God has already done to us and for us. So in order to understand the reality here that it's all grace all the time, we have an attitude towards our own strength and our own understanding and our own track record, right? That instead of bringing um, pride and bringing celebration or bon vivants, whatever, we grieve and mourn and wail. We admit through our actions that we have no strength in these matters, that we need God's help. James says, change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. A simple process of expressing sorrow for sin. You know, and as I read that, I, asked, I had to ask myself, am, am I really that broken up about my failings? And I had to admit that, no, I'm not. Actually, I'm not. You know, when I mess up, I find an excuse. You know, and if, if all else fails, I have to apologize. No, that's, that's not the way. That's not the way, Grace, you know. A true understanding of who we are in Christ means that when we mess up, it ought to be devastating. That we have, we have borne witness that God does not have the power to save us. Or that his Holy Spirit is ineffectual in our transformation, Right? Or that we don't understand what it means to be holy. All of these things ought to drive us to mourning. And to falling on our knees and crying out to God to forgive us, to wash us, to heal us, to make us new. And to put us back again on the path to seeking God's face. Humble yourselves, says James. Humble yourselves before the Lord. It means to recognize our own spiritual poverty and to acknowledge, consequently, our desperate need for God's help to submit to his commanding will for our lives. Plain and simple. We admit it. We announce it. We use that to drive ourselves to the Lord in prayer and in study of his word and seeking the people, his community, the family that he is building on earth even now. And the fruit of this will be the thing that we search for in all the other ways, right? Looking for love in all the wrong places, you've heard the song. It means looking for that thing that sustains us, that fills us, that makes us truly happy. But looking for it in all the wrong places, in, in sex and drugs and rock and roll. When all along that very thing that we hunger for is given to us in Christ Jesus. If only we admit that only God can give it to us. That only God can fill us up. And to seek his face and to ask for it. And to be his people. The fruit of all this is humility. It's beautifully exemplified in the tax collector of Jesus' parable. Who deeply conscious of his sin called out to God for mercy. In response Jesus pronounces him justified. This is Jesus pronouncing him justified now, right? And he summarizes it. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself 
will be exalted. That exaltation is what we desire. It's what we search for. It's what we look for. Right? It's the thing that lifts us up out of our sinful state, out of the muck and the mire of sinfulness, and stands us on the rock in the light of day, under the gaze of our Lord, walking beside him always. Jesus pronounces him justified. He exalts him. He lifts us up. 2 Timothy 2.12 If we endure, he will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. So God promises to exalt us one day, to make us reign with Christ. However, this exaltation does not come as the result of the exertion of our own power, but results from our humility. Only those who submit to God humbly, admitting that he alone has authority over us, will, exalt, will enjoy this exaltation. We submit to his authority by repenting of our sin, all of which seeks to usurp God's rightful rule over us. Therefore, Humble yourselves. And that's the message of James's letter. He speaks harshly at first because he wants to get our attention. He wants to, he wants to convince us of the urgency and the lethality of this delusional way of thinking and call us to the only source for rightfulness, for holiness, for purity and salvation to God. And when we come to him with that expectation... Right, of being forgiven for our sins. If we admit to him our weakness and our brokenness and call to him for salvation, he, we will receive it. Scripture tells us if we do that diligently, if we seek Jesus diligently, we will find him. If we call out to him in our urgent need, he will hear our cry, just as he did with the children of Israel, and he will come to our aid. If we look to him for our strength, he will provide. If we trust in him as our only God and Savior and seek no other source for sustenance, then he will feed us and keep us strong. Repent, therefore, and humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray.